Uh, The title I've chosen for my sermon today is Wrestling with God. Wrestling with God. And I, I realize such a title is peculiar for a sermon in our worship service. Um, but it's based on a rather peculiar event that perhaps you've seen in God's Word. It's an event in the life of the patriarch Jacob, and it's a providential sort of wrestling match that he has with the Lord. And as I was reading different events in the patriarchs this week, that's one that has always stood out to me, and I decided I would sort of throw out together what I've been gleaning from that and bring it to you today. It's a well-known passage to many Christians, and admittedly, it's a really puzzling one at first glance, and second glance, and third glance. Uh, Not many people wrestle with the Lord, Uh, but like all that is in God's Word, the Holy Spirit has recorded it for our benefit. What makes Jacob in particular so compelling as a patriarch is the fact that he's the one whom God chose to embody the identity of his people Israel. He is where the nation receives their name as God changes his name to Israel. And through him, the twelve tribes proceed through his twelve sons. Uh, This means that the life of Jacob is unique, and it's not just any typical biography to gloss over in the biblical record. But his life and his identity embody a theological theme concerning God's people. And God uses him as an object lesson for us. Jacob's identity, if you had to sum it up, it can be summed up as a schemer whose life is a struggle to prevail. And likewise, the nation Israel would scheme and struggle to prevail. There's a, an analogous comparison between the two. And you and I, as those who have been grafted into God's covenant people, our own testimonies and our own lives reflect this reality. Our fleshly bent is towards scheming and putting trust in ourselves to make things happen in the Christian life. Our lives are marked by a continual struggle to prevail. The natural bent of our hearts is to trust in our way rather than trusting in the Lord with all our heart and leaning not on our own understanding. And so as we look at Jacob in our passage in this wrestling match, I I want us to look in the mirror, so to speak, and note that he's the prototype for all of God's people. That he's not just an isolated case. The portrait of his life is not one of perfection, but one of direction. And just like all of the saints in the Bible, his life is recorded with all of his blemishes, and all of his weakness, and all of his sinful scheming, and all of his struggle. So I'm just going to delve straight into the passage, and, and then I'll sort of guide us through the flow of its context. Look at verse 22 Speaking of Jacob, verse 22, the same night he arose, that's Jacob, and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. 
Now, that's sort of a funny place to start, uh, a narrative. I notice a, a couple of things as I begin these verses. I just want you to know that I'm aware of them. Uh, for one thing, I realize that we're beginning our text in the middle of a story. It's like starting a movie right in the middle. And so I, I realize that. I'm going to bring us a little bit up to speed in a moment. The other thing I realize is that out of all the scenes of a person's life, this is one that you probably wouldn't want to begin at if you were telling the story. It's really a bizarre scene to interject in. Why is a man crossing a stream at night with all his possessions? And how did he get two wives? And let's just add to the mix two maidservants who would really be more like concubines, by the way. And then let's just add 11 children. Uh, There's already a lot that could be inferred about the complicated life that Jacob has schemed for himself just from these verses alone. And I'm not going to elaborate on all the details, but what I'll do is briefly give you the, the snapshots, the highlights of how Jacob has gotten to this point. Here's a life portrait of Jacob the schemer. Jacob was born to Isaac, the son of Abraham. And so he's born in this covenant lineage, destined to bring God's blessing to the earth. Uh, From the time of his conception, just to jog your memory, he was born as a twin to a brother named Esau. And even from that time, in Genesis 25, it states that the two twins were struggling in the womb of Rebekah. And she prays about this. It's just a struggle in the womb. And and God reveals to her that this struggle between the two infants in her womb are prefiguring a conflict that would happen between the offspring of the two children. There's two nations in the womb. From Esau would come the Edomites, and from Jacob would come the Israelites. And then the Lord reveals something to her that really sets the trajectory for Jacob's life. He tells her something that would be backwards to those at the time. It is prophesied to Rebekah that the older, that's Esau, will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. And this was backwards because the firstborn of any family in the ancient Near East was the one who had the Father's blessing, the birthright. And that included a double portion of the inheritance that would be passed on. It also included a status, a patriarchal status of some kind of chief position over the others in the clan. And naturally, Esau should have received this by birth, but God in His sovereign prerogative has chosen Jacob to receive the blessing. Uh, Jacob was to be the one to be blessed. And from then on, Jacob's life is really set up as a long test of faith to see whether he would believe God to give the blessing in his timing and in his way, or whether he would resort to scheming and taking matters into his own hands to make it happen. Uh, That's the setup for his whole life's struggle. 
And instead of taking the approach of trusting God for the promised blessing, much like Israel later would, he takes the approach of trusting in his own fleshly efforts and he becomes a schemer. In fact, at his birth in Genesis 25, in an almost comical way, Moses, the author, writes that when Esau came out of the womb, so we need to picture this birth picture, Esau's coming out of the womb, Jacob's hand was holding on to Esau's ankle, his heel. Uh, the idea was that even from birth, Jacob was already trying to fight for his position ahead of Esau. It, it's comical. And I don't think it's flippant to say that. It actually, I think Scripture often intends for some details to be recorded to humor us, to clue us in to what's going on. The idea is Jacob is a struggler from birth. He's even a schemer from birth. And this is where he received his name, Jacob, which literally means a heel catcher. A name which would imply his identity as one who was always ready to fight to get ahead. And there are multiple chapters of his life of, of struggling and scheming for this promised blessing. Just to sort of sum it up, he, he schemes for the blessing, you recall, to obtain it from Esau by making a nice stew. And he makes a bargain to trade the stew for the birthright. Later on, he prompted by his mother, Rebecca. You recall that he seeks to scheme another way toward his father Isaac by disguising himself as, a, as his brother Esau while he's out hunting some game. And blind Isaac is ready to pronounce the firstborn blessing and Jacob receives it by lying, by deception. And after this episode, Esau returns and he's furious and he's vengeful. And Rebekah actually sends him away because she doesn't want to lose her child. And he flees all the way to Haran, all the way to Mesopotamia, where Abraham once began. And it is there that his life of struggle reaches its ultimate irony as he himself is schemed against by his treacherous uncle Laban, which ends up with basically Jacob getting the headache of marrying two rivaling sisters Leah and Rachel, who basically end up using him for their own contest to outdo each other in giving birth, which included the use of his two other maidservants, just to complicate it more. It's a long, messy, and grievous story that we don't have time to get into. But all that to say that all this brought pain and confusion in the life of this one who was promised the Lord's blessing. As we begin our text in Genesis 32, 22 and 23, just to bring you completely up to speed, Jacob by now in his life, in this complicated life he's made for himself, he's by now decided to scheme against the schemer Laban. And he leaves in the middle of the night outside of Laban's knowledge. He takes his whole entourage and he decides he's going to take his family to the promised land in Canaan. And just to give you a timeline, it's been about 20 years since he first fled. He's had 20 years of a different life away from the promised land. He's a worn down man in our passage. 
And although he had schemed his way into receiving the blessing from Isaac that 20 years before, it's brought nothing but bitter consequences upon his life. And you know, I don't want to, I don't want to give a completely godless picture of Jacob. Uh, when he was going to the promise, when he was leaving the promised land, you recall in Genesis 28, he had a remarkable encounter with God. In Genesis 28, God appeared to him in a dream where he confirmed his covenant with him and he gives him this glorious vision of his presence, like a ladder connecting heaven to earth. And there's angels ascending and descending on it. And Jacob makes a memorial and he's so moved that he consecrates the location and calls it Bethel, meaning house of God. So I just want to kind of bring that into the, the forefront of his mind. He, he was thinking still about God. In these 20 years, he must have been mulling over how he was going to get back to the promised land. In fact, he was probably scheming how. But a time finally comes where he's going to head back, and it seems he has faith that this will work out somehow, but he has one problem on his way back. One of the consequences of his scheming awaits him, his brother Esau, who even after 20 years might still be seeking revenge. And here in chapter 32, Jacob is on the move. And just to sort of sum up the chapter, he hears Esau is coming and Esau has 400 men with him. And that's all Jacob hears. He's afraid, of course, of the hostility that can come. And he prays to God. And he begins to send gifts ahead of him. And in the verses we read in 22 and 23, we see that he sends his family away from him across the stream because he fears the possibility of what Esau can do to his wives and his children. Now, just to give a spoiler for those who don't know the story, we find out later in Genesis that Esau was indeed not hostile all along. In fact, there's reconciliation that's going to happen. But for now, Jacob has no idea. And he's in a dark place. And when he sends his family away, he is alone, just like he was 20 years ago when he fled. And just like 20 years ago, he's going to encounter God. Except this time, it's not going to be in some passive vision. It's going to be a lot more exhausting. A lot less spiritual in nature and a lot more physical. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, as if his night was not stressful enough, For Jacob, it takes a very unexpected turn. One moment, he's all alone, probably just collecting his thoughts. Next thing he knows, some man grabs a hold of him, and they're wrestling there in the dirt. Literally, the word means to to get dusty. They're rolling around. And it's a wrestling match for the rest of the night. The text says a man wrestled with him. And now I'm going to save us the enigma of this man's identity. We're supposed to sort of wonder at this point who it might be, but the end of the passage reveals 
who it turns out to be. Jacob acknowledges that God himself has condescended to reveal himself in the identity of this man. God has come in the flesh of a man. And that should clue us in to something about the identity of God, that perhaps this is not just any theophany that is happening. It could be what many theologians conclude could be a Christophany. That perhaps this is God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, coming down in a pre-incarnate appearance. This is sometimes referred to as the angel of the Lord, or more literally, the messenger of the Lord. And Christ, God, has a message for Jacob. But first, he's going to wrestle him. Now note that it's not Jacob who began wrestling with God. This is an important thing to notice in our passage. Verse 24 says, He, the man, God, wrestled with Jacob. Now as I was studying this, that's really an important part to point out. Because this is God's way with His people. Jacob's being made an object lesson, so we need to take note of every detail. Jacob did not initiate this struggle. But rather, God is the one who initiated it, and He's the one who's making a point. It's really a microcosm of the struggle Jacob has had his whole life. That behind the struggle he's always had, he has always been subject to God who initiates to get his attention. He's never been able to scheme outside of God's work in his life. God has always been getting a hold of him. And God has arranged providentially his whole life, even with all his sinful choices, to this point. Even in the midst of a lifelong struggle, even in the midst of all his scheming, God has always been moving in his providence. And this is the great irony that we're actually supposed to see in the passage. Jacob schemes, and God's people may scheme, but the God of providence outschemes them all. Something bigger is happening than what Jacob thinks he's doing in the script. Uh, There is a tension that exists between how much we think we're in charge and coming to grips with who is really in charge. And that tension is a lot like wrestling. More on that as we keep looking. Look at verse 25 at this wrestling match. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. I want to first look at that first phrase. It's interesting that the man, God, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. First of all, let's remember that this wrestling match has been happening all night. This has been a long struggle between the two. And I don't know what it looked like. I was trying to envision this. I don't know if there were holds involved or if God had Jacob in a headlock. But it was a long night. And it was by God's design. And now the sun is coming up. And there's a realization from the man, God, 
that he did not prevail against Jacob. Now, knowing this is God, that sounds like an odd statement for him to make. Because it sounds like perhaps it's implying there was a weakness on the part of the man in the fight. That perhaps God was struggling. Well, that's actually not the point that's being made. It appears that way. But actually, the rest of the verse makes it clear it was never a fair match in the first place. Uh, This heel catcher from the beginning, uh, it was never about trying to win over him. It was never about God trying to win. It was rather about Jacob being humbled and acknowledging that his way of struggling was going nowhere. And he just wouldn't acknowledge it. And so in that sense, he realized his lesson that he's teaching is not prevailing. And I'm not what was going through Jacob's mind Maybe hour after hour, just a little longer, a little more exertion, a little more energy, and I'll pin him down. He's relentless, and he's still trusting in himself. Being drained of every ounce of energy that night, it really was representative of his whole tiresome life of struggle against God. And I love this next part. It's a really good part. God finally just stops. And he basically says, okay, we're done here now. And all he does is simply give a light touch on his hip socket, and Jacob is immediately dislocated. If you were questioning whether the the man was struggling, it's put to rest now. It's a humbling picture because in the midst of all his exertion and drained energy, this one, this man, in a moment, shows how powerful and in control he's been throughout the whole night. If you saw that in your match with God, you you would almost wish that he just won a long time ago. After all that effort, you could have won a long time ago. But Jacob's in the position that he needs to be. That's the whole point here. He's in a position now of true desperation and total dependence at the mercy of this man. And by the way, if Jacob's the prototype, this is where you and I need to be with God. God often brings us to this place. We need times in our Christian walk and in our ministry and in our relationships and in everything God calls us to do. We need times where the Lord takes a hold of us and He needs our self-reliance and our self-confidence to be dislocated. And we need to recognize that the Lord can do that with a single touch. At any time, the Lord can bring us to our knees. He can humble His people in a moment and let them know with a single touch who's in charge. I saw a comment from James Montgomery Boyce. I like his comment on the passage. Boyce writes this, Have you ever had your life out of joint by God? Have you ever had your own little plans dislocated? You were trying to go your own way, 
or do your own thing contrary to God's will, and suddenly God used sickness or loss of a job or some severe setback or disappointment to bring you to the end of yourself and to turn you to Him. Those are such true words, I think, for all of us as children of God to relate to. It is a blessing to have the Lord's chastisement. It is loving for God to do this and to bring us this reality check because our scheming and our flesh is deceptive. It is delusional. And this is what He's doing with Jacob. And this is what He does with His people. And what I want to do next, instead of reading verse by verse, I just want to sort of look at this whole dialogue that now God has with Jacob in this match and just pull out a few things. Verse 26 begins their dialogue. I'm just going to read a bunch of verses in a row and just kind of draw out a few things. Then he, referring to God, said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Uh, The conversation begins in verse 26 with an ironic statement from the Lord after demonstrating this power. He says to Jacob, let me go. This passage just keeps getting a little more puzzling at first glance. Uh, Let me go. There's an irony again in the passage. The irony is in the fact that he had just demonstrated his superior, omnipotent position in the match. He has no need to be let go of. Why is he saying, let me go? Well, as is often the Lord's way, he is seeking to prompt a response from Jacob. And the response from Jacob is, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, if you just read this for the first time or many multiple times, it it seems like that doesn't quite fit. You have to be careful when reading this because you might miss what's actually happening. It's very subtle. At first glance, one might read this and it might seem like Jacob is still being headstrong and a schemer. Like he's still using his exertion in rebellion. But actually, that's not his disposition. His disposition has actually changed. The beauty of this passage and the object lesson it teaches is that Jacob is actually still struggling. He's technically still wrestling. But he's now doing so in a totally different spirit. Did you know that wrestling with God in itself is not the problem? Uh, The issue is the way and the manner one does so. His wrestling is now changed from a struggle to maneuver things by his own will to now depending on the Lord. It's very subtle. His wrestling is still happening, 
But it's not to pin the Lord, but notice he's now just clinging to the Lord. The struggle is human. The question is, are you struggling against God or are you struggling to lay hold on God and His promises? He knows the promise of God. The lesson is that wrestling and struggling in themselves can be a good characteristic in God's people when it is done in a, reliance, in a, in a sense of faith and reliance upon Him. And God's saints through history have always demonstrated this kind of wrestling. Moses wrestled with God in intercession. The psalmist, like David, wrestled with the Lord in many fearful circumstances. The Apostle Paul wrestled as he pleaded with the Lord to remove a thorn in the flesh. This is a good word for you and I, because in seeking to live a life by faith, we should not expect it. We shouldn't be discouraged in expecting life to be easy. Or we shouldn't feel less spiritual when the Christian life is a struggle. But rather, we need to remember to direct our disposition toward God. We need to remember that this is the good fight of faith. It is a good fight and a good struggle if by faith we seek God's will. This is what God wanted to characterize His people Israel. The Lord has touched him and left him dislocated and is ready to walk away, but Jacob in humble reliance has come to the point where he's holding on to the one that he recognizes as the only source of blessing. And that's really the key here in this whole passage he finally is recognizing that God is the only source of blessing and He no longer needs to scheme and connive to steal the blessing. That's all that He did before. All of His manipulation and, and trickery and deception was His own doing. He was in essence all along uh, building His own little kingdom and doing His own thing. But now, he's pinned. And he's in a position to cling and plead with the Lord as the only source of blessing on his life. And he's a changed man. Signified by the change the Lord gives him with the change of his name. Interesting response from the Lord. What is your name? God loves to ask questions in order to elicit a response from the person he's asking. It's for their benefit, not his knowledge. He says to Jacob, he's no longer going to be Jacob, the heel catcher. His name will now be Israel. He says as his reason, you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. And Jacob receives this by faith. And it says the Lord blesses him. God sums up his whole life in one sentence of striving and struggling with God and men. Israel's main meaning is one who struggles with God. And it's a reminder that Jacob would carry on this identity and the people of Israel would carry this throughout their history. Highlighting their dependence and trusting the Lord and awaiting the day when they will do that again. Uh, the identity also of struggle showcases the resolution that could only be found 
from the Lord, as salvation is only in Him. All blessing is from Him. And ultimately, this is seen in the work of redemption through the Messiah. Jacob asks what the man's name is, and that's apparently irrelevant to the man. He should know who this is. The final statement is again a testament to the humble change that occurred in Jacob. He recognizes that his prevailing was not out of his ability, but rather he was the one who had been delivered. He saw the face of God and lived. He received grace. Jacob deserved to die, but he left that day spared. And more than that, he's given a new identity to carry on the work of God's blessing. Verse 31 adds a further note about the aftermath. It says, The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. It's interesting that when all is said and done, uh, he still has to limp away. The lesson is learned, but just because God wrestles with you to get your attention, it doesn't mean you go away painless. Jacob is going to carry this limping as a reminder of his struggle with the Lord. He still bore many of the consequences from his scheming. And you and I will carry many of the injuries the Lord brings into our lives through His chastisement. But that limp didn't change his new identity and the mission he now had. Like Jacob, we can limp in this life and we can limp home to glory knowing we look to the Lord and in, his, in our weakness, He makes us strong and His grace is sufficient. And in our struggling, faithful reliance upon Him, He receives all the glory. Now this last verse is actually a good transition for communion, which we're going to briefly take as we go out to enjoy a meal together. The last verse, verse 32, reveals a meal that the Lord's people would remember. And we can start distributing the communion as I just kind of touch on this. By the way, as a a special way of remembering the Lord's work in the world and our communion, we're going to be using Robin's bread for the communion. Actual bread. (laughs) Look at the last verse. Verse 32. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. It's an interesting note from Moses. It's actually not anywhere written in the books of the law. This was just a tradition that the readers would understand once they read it. The people of Israel often remembered important works of God (coughs) through the symbolism of a meal. They remember the Lord's work in delivering Jacob, apparently, by not eating the part with the hip socket. And we as members of the New Covenant remember the Lord's ultimate work of deliverance through the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Around the table of communion, with the bread and the cup, we remember where everything in redemptive history came to a climax. God appeared in momentary human flesh for the sake of a lesson with Jacob. 
but in the fullness of time. He permanently took on human flesh as the incarnate God-man. Take one, two. (laughs) All the scheming of His people came to the worst point in history in the worst scheme. As Israel continued in their history through the line of Jacob, they came to a climax where they sentenced their Messiah, the Lord of glory, to the cross. And all the scheming of history, the Romans and Israel and Satan schemed this horrific death. And you and I, in our prior state, as enemies of God, we schemed this death. As our sin pinned Him to that tree. And then there's Jesus. Jesus, who embodied true Israel, the true Israelite, He demonstrated the best struggle of faith. You recall in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He wrestled with the Father in prayer. That if there be any way, this cup would pass from Him. And the key that made His noble struggle one of faith is that He cries out, but not My will, but Your will be done. And there was no other way. If God was going to deliver His people, if He would have Salvation for this earth. The Son of God would have to bear our sins. He would have to drink the cup of divine wrath. And He did. And in His sovereign design, God did His ultimate work in out-scheming the schemers. For by their very deed, they served His purpose in bringing about redemption. When we take communion, we remember that Jesus bore the full brunt of the curse so that He might usher in the blessing, the blessing of salvation for all who believe. Father, we thank You for this this time. This time where we can reflect on Your work in the world. This time where we can reflect on Your work in Your people. Lord, just like Jacob got to catch a glimpse of Your face and was changed, we pray that, Lord, You would continually reveal Yourself to us. That the face of Christ, the glory of You in the Word would continually transform us. Give us the identity to, in our brokenness and in our struggle to rely upon You. Help us to never rely on the arm of the flesh in any ministry we do but may it be the work of Your Son. May He be the one we champion, the one we love, the one we serve. And in our struggle, may we always find that there is blessing in His name. We pray that You would bless our time, that You would bless the fellowship, and that, Lord, You would be magnified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.